Welcome to Sports Life Balance. I, I believed that there was a lot of things that I didn't need to do because I just naturally, somehow, by the grace of whatever you believe in, was really good at soccer. And so the hard work belonged to someone else. I'll just come out and do the little things. Like I, I can do those things really easily. I don't know why I was, you know, I was given this gift of, you know, good balance and um, good technique, and I could do most sports. And so I kind of overlooked all the little things that really kind of gave you this edge. And I learned the hard way, like smack you in the face hard way. Like, you know, you're, you're not going to make it because we don't think that you have a good enough work ethic or we don't think that you're committed enough because you don't do all the little things that everybody else is doing. And so that was a big wake up call, which was awesome because I needed it. That was American soccer legend Brandi Chastain describing a pivotal moment when she discovered that her immense talent could only take her so far. And today, you'll hear how, throughout Brandy's spectacular career, through all the setbacks, the injuries, and yes, the victories, she was always guided by a single powerful force, and that's love. I'm John Moffat, and I'm so glad you've joined us today for another episode of Sports Life Balance. During Brandy's 16 years of playing for the United States Women's National Team, she won two Olympic gold and one silver medal. She's part of two World Cup championship teams and played professionally around the world. And to this day, she's a coach. Brandy became world famous overnight when she kicked the game-winning goal to clinch Team USA's victory in the 1999 FIFA World Cup held at the Rose Bowl Stadium in Pasadena. But it's the photograph of that moment, the iconic image capturing the absolutely unbridled celebration ripping off her jersey, falling to her knees, and raising her fists towards the sky. That one picture symbolized the emergence of big-time women's sports in America, and more importantly, taught a new generation of girls that being an athlete can also be awe-inspiring. Well, Brandy, thank you so much for joining me today on Sports Life Balance. Uh, you're welcome, and it's nice to be here with you. Awesome. It's a good reminder for me anyway, just even the title. Well, you know, what I'm trying to get at is what those life-enhancing lessons that we all learn from sports that can be applied to real life. You know what? I, I, think, I, I'm, I think when we go through these different stages and phases of our life, those things mean different, those lessons mean different things. For sure. When my son was, before I had kids, now that I have, uh, I had a young son, now he's in his teenage years it means something different. You know, I have grandkids and, you know, I see myself managing those spaces differently. So it's, I think the balance part is really, I'm trying to find that, which is not always easy. No, no, no. And I think that that's the, that's the most elusive thing. And that's the most difficult thing to achieve. Um, the pursuit of an athlete, especially on the level that you were, um, pursuing, it's inherently imbalanced. Yeah. Um, but there still are so many life's lessons, and we'll be talking about a lot of those, and so a lot of life lessons that you, you taught the world as well. Um, so there's, there's certainly magic in that, and there's magic in sports, and, and we all know. Oh, no doubt about that. Well, we, we, have actually, we have actually met 
before. We worked together way back, I think it was 2009. You were one of the athletes on the Superstars, which was was a reboot um, from the 70s and 80s where Olympic gold medalists and professional athletes all came together in a big competition. And this particular one was in the Bahamas. (laughs) I, I, you know what? I can't tell you how excited I was to be on that show. Not, not so much on the show, but just be participating in the activities because I watched that show. I did too. And I loved all the different things. And I, I so desperately, when I was a young person wanted to, as a kid, you know, wanted to do this superstars. And that was, I, I wasn't in perfect health when I went to do it. So I was uh, a little bit disappointed in my outcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As the competitor in me would say. Yeah. But I had a blast. Well, that's good. That's good. And and I you I don't think you're gonna remember this, but you made an immediate impression on me. Um and that was well, that's that, nice. Yeah, you, I hope. Oh yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> oh no, no, it was good. Um when we first met, you made it very clear that you had done your research and that you knew that I was an athlete in my past life. See, now, now I'm trying, now I'm going back into my head going, oh my gosh, good for me. What yeah. did I forget? What well, I forget? no, no, no. It's, it's, I, I think the thing that's most notable, of course, I, I, I noted that because I've been in the entertainment business for a long time and rarely do people do that, that you work with. Rarely do people find out who you're working with. And then you're in a competition, you know, and the other thing that was amazing is no other athletes did that. So no other athletes figured out that I had an athletic background. Well, you know what? I've done a lot of different things, you know, with television and um, small film type things. And there's always kind of a disconnect between the sports and the production, you know, whether that be the camera person or the director or the writer. And so it's always nice when there's a confluence of those things because there's an understanding. So maybe that made me feel really comfortable to know that about you. Well, I think that there is an understanding between athletes. You know, there's a, although the experiences are oftentimes very separate, it is also a shared experience of, of what, you know, what, what fellow Olympians have been through um, mm-hmm. to, um, to get to where they, they went. They had to endure similar things and, and have that crazy, wacky dream that <laughs> nobody necessarily thinks you can accomplish that. Well, yeah, especially when it didn't exist when you were growing up. Well, for you, yeah, for you, for sure. And yeah. this this dream, I guess, began back in San Jose, which is where you grew up. That's in, correct. In Northern California, in the Bay Area, and um, and you you you've described in interviews past um, a universal from women of your era, and that is that you had to play from with the boys because there wasn't a girls' soccer team. There wasn't an opportunity. Well, and, you know, at a very young age, that was true. And then all of a sudden, girls' soccer did pop up. But there were instances when, like in school, where there wasn't a girls' team and there was a, I'm doing the air quote, (sighs) co-ed team, which wasn't really co-ed. It was named that, but really didn't act in that way. And so um, trying to be a part of that was an interesting opportunity, one that I'm really super grateful for because I found allyship in the friends that that were of a different gender than I was. And they basically told the coach, hey, you need to give these girls a try. They're good. 
So I think that was really the first time I was in seventh grade. Uh, you know, you're in an impressionable time, mm -hmm. you, you know, you, you start to make your judgments about things and, you know, start building the pathway of how you're going to think for the rest of your life. And I think that moment just stands so clear in my head about how I believe today that everybody has the capacity to do great things. It doesn't matter what you look like on the outside or what your religion is or where you were born or, you know, who your parents were. Um, everybody is, um, you know, if they so desire and they, they commit to it, can do wonderful things. And, and, and that's the key, right? I mean, when you were really little, nobody knew that you had immense soccer talent. But it was through your desire and drive and hard work where that soccer talent was honed and developed, right? And, and uh, so Yeah, I think, I think it was actually love. What? More than anything. I think it was through love, right? Because oh. when, I, when I went out there, I loved playing soccer. I loved the feeling I got. I loved the people that I was around. I loved how I felt at the end. I loved the anticipation of going. You know, I just loved all of that. And I, I just wanted it more and more all the time. And, and with, on the days that I didn't have soccer practice, which if you think about, you know, what the landscape of sport looks like right now, it's, it's overwhelmingly unbalanced mm -hmm. uh, in how many days of the week and how many trainers and what are the hours and what's the, Oh my gosh, it's over the top. And I practice two days a week, <laughs> two days a week <laughs> with my team, yeah. which was, <clears throat> which was probably about four hours a week. And then everything else was just, you know, on me. It was, you know, there wasn't anybody else. I took my ball down to the local school and I kicked it against the wall because that's what made me happy. That's what I love to do. Oh, that's, and, that yeah. That is so awesome, the way you described that through that one word, love. And and you were, yeah, you just actively pursued it because it was such something that was so deeply ingrained into who you were, I guess, right? I, I think because my parents just encouraged me to do what made me happy, you know, I mean, they didn't know anything about soccer. My dad was my coach. He didn't, he knew less than I did probably, and I didn't know anything. So we both just learned together it, it became our thing. And, uh, and we grew into soccer as a, as a family. So it was, yeah, I just, I, I don't know. I love, I just love the whole environment. I mean, I can close my eyes and just be right there on the sideline and, you know, I'm pulling my socks up and I'm running into the field and my grandfather and my mom and my dad and <clears throat> all the kids from my neighborhood. And, you know, their parents. And it was, it was always so fun. It was so fun. You know, I, I, I wanted my kids to feel that too. And, you know, I feel like maybe my love was so strong that it, for, it pushed them away from what I love mm -hmm. so much because it was just too overwhelming. You're a big shadow. Um, yeah, maybe. I mean, that was not the intention, right? The intention is to share with your kids what makes you feel good. And hopefully they get that same kind of feeling, but you know, they can't feel just because you felt something. So, you know, that was a big life lesson for me. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, that's another shared life lesson that we have, although yeah. I have one, one child who is a division one athlete and 
And, and much the same way, I think that you described that you just love going out on the field and that's your happy place and mm-hmm. it's your peaceful place. Um, she's the same way when she steps on the volleyball court. That's her, that's her space. And, and that's so awesome. it is, it is magic to see that because the pool was, you know, the water was, was my space. And so I understand mm. firsthand, like wanting that feeling. And I still yeah. like that feeling. Um, well, you, you started obviously taking it very seriously because you went to Archbishop Mitty, which yeah. those of us in, in California and those of us who have had uh, girls, especially going through you know high school, Archbishop Mitty, for those who don't know it, is no joke as far as girls' <laughs> athletic, girls' <laughs> athletics. And they're routinely ranked, if not number one, <clears throat> in the top, very top of the list of best athletic programs in the country. It, 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 I can't, I can't pretend like that's how it was when I was there. <laughs> it was just the beginning. I mean, we won, yeah. I mean, we won three championships in soccer, but, um, you know, when I went to MIDI, that's really wasn't the focus. And it was, I only happened to go there because two of my, my teammates from my youth team were going and they said, come on with us. Uh. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I didn't even know. It was like a, cu- a few weeks before school was to start. And they're like, yeah, we're going to go to the school. And I was like, hey, mom and dad, what do you think about it? <laughs> go to this private school where it takes 45 minutes to get there because there's no, there's no freeway between here and there. And, and they're like, oh, we can carpool. Okay, let's do it. And I mean, that could never happen now. I mean, the application process and the, the you know, just the testing to get in. I probably would, I, I'm, I don't know if I would, would make it, but, um, it was on a whim and Mitty wow. was, yeah, Mitty was great, but, but it's, it is, it has evolved for sure since the mid eighties. I'll well, say that. Well, winning three state championships, you were certainly once again at the leading edge of creating that legacy. Yeah, unbeknownst to me, yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, well, it, it look you 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 did well enough where you ended up uh, going across the bay to college to Berkeley. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and by all indications, you did really well, didn't you? You had a very good season your freshman soccer year. wise. Yes. Soccer wise. Soccer wise, I did fabulous. Uh, I was I was freshman player of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, we went to the playoffs. I think we were in the quarterfinals of the NCAA tournament. So that's fantastic. Yeah. But my uh, talking about sport life balance was no, it was totally out of whack. It was really just sport. Mm. And I was in over my head and being uh, independent and then not being responsible. So it was great. It was great. I, I look back on the experience, though very difficult and disappointing, and I, I feel like I let some people down. Um, I really learned a lot about commitment and um, time management, and you know, just organizing your life. And I, I still, to this day, don't get it always right, but mm-hmm. um, it's you know, it was. I was really grateful for the opportunity because it definitely gave me a lot of perspective. Right. Which is what college is supposed to do. And it was obviously yeah. part of the foundation of creating, you know, who, who, what you were able to accomplish in the future and all of those lessons are, 
you are there for there for a reason. You know, we all experience those things. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, you know, I, I again, I I think parenting is the hardest thing I've ever done, and every day is it presents a new challenge. And so, you know, I'm I'm trying to keep my head above water and figure out how to be the best parent I can be when I, I'm not even, you know, my parents are no longer um, living and I wish I could have asked them questions about what did you do when I did mm-hmm. this and how did you handle it? And cause the, there's just no guidebook. No. Um, and, but, but the point of what I'm saying is that we need sometimes to have these barriers of entry to feelings or emotions or outcomes or answers because if we don't have those things and we just kind of, you know, yeah. we coast along without in feeling about things or really, you know, stretching ourselves. Right. Well, and you have to have the pain points. Um, and, yeah. and from what I read, the like from your background, um, you know, you had an incredible success on the soccer field at, at, at Cal. However, mm-hmm. right on the heels of that, I'm sorry, that was a bad pun. Um, you had double ACL surgery, um, anterior cruciate limited ligament, and you don't have two of those unless there's massive damage, right? Yeah, no, I mean, I, my first ACL happened in the spring of my freshman year and I was playing with a club team and just, you know, I was in a game and not an unusual circumstance, but I, you know, I tried to run between two players and we had this collision and, um, and luckily we had, one of my teammates was dating this guy who was a physical therapist and he came out and he was kind of like our trainer and he came out and he kind of did a little assessment and he's like, Hey, let's just come off the field. There's not much of the game left. Okay. I kind of fought him a little bit. I said, mm-hmm. no, no, I think I'm fine. He's like, yeah, let's just see, you know, it's the first day of the tournament. We'll wait to see how it's feeling tomorrow. And that night it just went, oh. you know, and he's like, eh, I think, I think we need to talk about what this could possibly be. And I had no idea, right. you know, no idea. And so that started something really great in my life, which I didn't foresee. I didn't want, but it turned out to be amazing. Um, which is that, you know, it gave it, it, it was the impetus for making a change, leaving Cal and mm-hmm. coming home and, um, finding, the pathway that I was supposed to be on. Um, and that, you know, kind of giving me a reset, I think, wow. you know, hitting re- reset is, is okay. You know, I think most of us feel that if we make a choice, we have to endure through that choice and just accept what comes with it. And, uh, I know that we don't have to do that. You know, life doesn't say that just because we get on the treadmill going in this direction, we have to take it. So that was a one, a really great realization um, not easy. No. Um, and then when I decided that, um, after a year plus of therapy and getting well, I started playing again and then I tore my other ACL right uh, after I had decided to go to Santa Clara. So it was about six and a half months before I decided to go to Santa Clara. And so it was a real, it was a, it was a grind. The second one is harder because you know what it right. takes, but the second one is then easier because you know what it takes. Yeah. So there's a little push pull there, which I think for life is also good. You know, yeah. you know, I knew I could do it. I understood the process. 
Um, I had a great support system. Mm -hmm. I was willing. I wanted to play soccer. So I was motivated. Right. Um, You know, the time wasn't ideal, but it was what it was. So just get on with it. So I, I, I did a lot of growing up in that time. Yeah. Yeah. And those times make us all grow up. Those, those injuries, those setbacks, just as in, in life, you know, you get, you get injuries, metaphorical injuries, and you get setbacks all, all all the time. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's great to hear, very well said, by the way, great to hear from you about, you know, what those setbacks uh, mean as far as like the total, the large trajectory of, of your life. Um, you mentioned that you ended up back at Santa Clara. Oh, you were on the national team, by the way, in 1988. So you did get back to high level play before you went to Santa Clara. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I I, actually, in between those two ACLs, um, I had torn part of my meniscus and they fixed it. And then I went and I played with the national team and I went into a, a slide tackle and the player just barely hit the the edge of my toe, mm. which turned my foot, which clipped like that, just caught my lower leg to turn and my meniscus went again. Oh. So that was, that was um, another wonderful fun thing to be on crutches in China for two weeks. Like that was, that was, <laughs> that was good old times. Um, so, you know, I, I've learned a lot of hard lessons, uh, which is, Again, I think that's really good. I mean, sometimes we find ourselves in the middle of it, like, you know, in the middle of things going, why is this happening? How do I endure through this thing? What, what, what's the pot, what's the key that's going to unlock the door to finding happiness or finding comfort. And, and sometimes it takes longer to find the keys. And, um, and I, I mean, I hope that we all can find the key to Mm -hmm. those, you know, those things in life, but Sometimes we have to persevere for a long time. And if you ever speak to any athletes, it doesn't matter the sport. The One of the enduring lessons that all of them have figured out is that it's a slow slog. And it is a lot of hard work. And it's not like Rocky with where the music's playing and you're all excited and you're training hard and everything's perfect and making progress every day. It's It's a lot of grind and grit. Yeah, it is. But you know, uh, I find that this conversation is really interesting for me because I, I when I think back on it, I mean, oh God, I mean, I had so many iterations of myself that, you know, from the start in the late 80s to 2004, where, you know, I was a world champion and then cut from the team, mm-hmm. like just, just not on the team anymore. And, you know, what did that mean? And what did it look like? And how did it feel? And then, making my way back to the team. And then when I made my way back to the team, they told me, well, you're not going to play the position that you normally play. It's like telling you your favorite, if your favorite stroke was breaststroke, breaststroke. Oh, that's my son. That was my son's favorite. So if your favorite stroke was breaststroke, now you're going to, you're going to just be a backstroker, you know, or you're going to do the Mm -hmm. butterfly and you're like, what the hell? I don't do that. Like that's not what I do the best. And, but then, you know, you see that they, really think that you can do it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you start to believe, well, if they believe it, then I should go for it. So you have a transformation, you know, you, you, you morph into something different. And then now the next thing, you know, you're the, you're starting on the first ever women's soccer team in the Olympics. 
and you're playing a totally different position and you play every minute and you know then the next big tournament is the world cup and you you know we're hosting it in these massive stadiums <laughs> right. and it's totally man it, it's this gigantic tournament that is like it's turning the world upside down in terms of how they how people are viewing and um consuming women's sports and and now you get to step up to take the final kick and oh yeah but by the way you know you normally would do that with your right foot but the coach just said hey take it with your left foot <sighs> and you're too tired to argue so you just do it anyway and you make it and what i can say is you know there that i look back on that and i think none of that is the way i thought it would go but i was willing to go through it. And so when you say it's this slow kind of slog, it is at times really slow, but my gosh, I have to, rem I have to tell you, I remember I loved every practice again. Like I loved going to the locker room. I loved getting my cleats out and just the feeling of putting my foot in the shoe was just like, and tightening it just to the right tension. And I mean, I loved it all. Like for me, it was like, I wanted it to be forever. Mm. You know, I didn't, I didn't want practice to be over. Um, I, I mean, I love the games, but the practices to me were like the awesome part. Wow. What passion, yeah. seriously. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I've ever spoken with an athlete that spoke with such passion about training. <laughs> well, you know, listen, I, let, let me just say, I really went through, I went through some, real personal, um, I, I got over a lot of hurdles mm -hmm. and I, I believed that there was a lot of things that I didn't need to do because I just naturally somehow by the grace of whatever you believe in mm -hmm. was really good at soccer. And so the hard work belonged to someone else. Mm. I'll just come out and do the little things. Like I, I can do those things really easily. I don't know why I yeah. was, you know, I was given this gift of, you know, good balance and, um, good technique. And I could do most sports. And so I kind of overlooked all the little things that really kind of gave you this edge. And I learned the hard way, like smack you in the face hard way. Like, you know, you're, you're not going to make it because we don't think that you have a good enough work ethic. Or we don't think that you're committed enough because you don't do all the little things mm. that everybody else is doing. And so that was a big wake up call, which was again, awesome <laughs> because I needed it. You know, I didn't know I needed it. Right. And that's, I think a part of growing is you really, you know, you don't know you need it until you really can have perspective. And then you realize hmm, that's true. I, I did need to do that. It's crazy how so many things in life, especially in athletic careers, but in life, you look back upon them and you're like, maybe there was a reason for that. And maybe I wouldn't mm. be who I am if that didn't happen. And maybe this wouldn't have happened. And all these fortunate things that you found yourselves with is accumulation of all of those victories and all of those stumbles. Without a doubt. I mean, I'm, and maybe what I'm hearing my, you and myself say right now is that I'm going to get through parenting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make it. Yeah, you know, you I think everybody, I think everybody needs to 
give themselves a break and say, you're going to make it. You're going to, you're meant to go through this for some reason. There's no doubt about that. I, I fully believe it. Uh, no doubt, no doubt, no doubt, no doubt. Um, and, and I think if I, here's the part about, about sports that I sometimes wish I had because now I see what's accessible to athletes. And then sometimes I say, gosh, I'm really glad I didn't have it. You know, all these extracurricular things and all these people doing all these, all this wonderful work, whether it's in mindset or whether it's in, you know, imagery or it's in, you know, you know, just technical, you know, trainings. And, you know, I had to learn all those things on my own. Mm-hmm. And so I, I feel like I'm very confident that I can be resilient and I can learn things. Um, I don't always learn them the easy way. Maybe that's what I'm also learning. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, so. you're certainly resilient. Um, I, I want to go back and talk to you a little bit about these, the where this whole uh, women's soccer thing began. And um mm-hmm. I want to I want to ask you about the 1991 World Cup yeah. in China. Um, I believe that was was that was that the first official women's World Cup. Uh, the answer is technically yes and no. Can can you be both? Because it wasn't actually called the World Cup; it was called the M and M Cup. Um, because FIFA really didn't want to give it a name of the world cup because that might dilute the world cup name because they weren't sure how it was going to go because there were women in it. Yeah. Because it was, I'm going to look it up right now as we're talking. Oh my Um, gosh. M and M M and M cup women's soccer 1991. Um, yeah, because it was the first time, right? So we had, um, yeah, so it was called first FIFA World Championship for women's football for the M&M's Cup. You're kidding me. <laughs> no, 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 because, <laughs> you know, it was, it, they were just seeing how it was. We had kind of a pre-World Cup in 1989, I think. Mm-hmm. And and it went okay. It went pretty well, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know. Um, and then they said, okay, we'll do this. But we're still going to call it the women, the World Championship. The M&M's Cup. So. But it wasn't but, officially the World Cup yet. But let's right. call it the World yeah. Cup for right now, <laughs> shall we? Um, I, I, I saw some footage and I heard you tell some stories um, about that. And, mm. and that um, is that there was a lot of fan base in China, wasn't there? It, there were a lot of people there. Yes. And, but that was very different than what you were experiencing back here in the States at that time, right? Well, we had, I think as a whole, women's soccer hadn't been played in front of large, I mean, I don't even, I couldn't even tell you what the largest crowd we had played in front of. World Cup qualification, which was held in Haiti, you know, was in a decent sized stadium, but maybe had 10, up to 10,000 people, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, you know, so the, the, the stadiums weren't, overflowing you know they weren't seventy five thousand or ninety thousand, and um and in china they had these big stadiums and you know what was great about going to china we went there so many we went there so many years in a row for tournament year after year after year is 
you know, we really got to see China change um, physically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we would we played in old stadiums and in small little villages that were, you know, dirt, there was dirt roads mm-hmm. or um, not a lot of cars, lots of bicycles, a lot of people walking, maybe a, mo- a few mopeds. And then like, as everything started transitioning, it was like high rise buildings, lo- more cars, right. less bicycles, more mopeds. Like, I mean, it was just, I feel like that was kind of, um, I could look back on that timeline of where China was growing and look at women's soccer mm. and follow it on that pathway. I, I think the thing that is, was especially notable for me is that, that USA won. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, we did. And, and Brandy, <laughs> I, I, I had to read that like three times. I'm like, really? I don't remember I don't remember a peep of that. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, I've been saying this word a lot lately because of what I think women's soccer has accomplished and the amount of attention women's soccer has on it right now. I mean, soccer, women's soccer was anonymous. It was anonymous. And that's not to say it was just women's soccer either. So I, sometimes I catch myself and I take pause and I think, most of soccer was anonymous Mm. minus Pelé. Right. Right. And the New York cosmos. And, you know, I grew up here in San Jose and I went, I was season ticket holder since 1978, nine. And I, I, I didn't, I didn't know it at the time, maybe because I was, you know, too young to understand, but, I thought soccer was amazing and it was big because we went to a stadium and it was, it was great. But, you know, outside of the, I don't know how many cities it was, it was anonymous. Like it wasn't, it wasn't something that was on the front page and it wasn't making big splashes. So, you know, I, I I feel that women's soccer now is the antithesis of anonymous. It's like, it is like the most powerful, um, deepest, most untapped well we have. And there's so much for us to do that we can do because we've got people's attention and we have to use that for the good, really, um, of the sport, of girls, for inclusion, for pay equity, for, uh, for everything. Right. And yeah. it's awesome to be a part of that group. Oh, my gosh. I've been yeah. so excited to speak with you just to get your reflections on on all of those things, all those aspects of the journey that you've been on through soccer. Um, you you alluded to it um, a few minutes ago, and that was that in 1995, I believe, then four years later, you actually got cut from the team. How- in 91, right after the World Cup. Um, yeah, Anson... Dorrance, who was the coach at the time. Uh, I don't, I'm not, I'm, I don't, to this day, I really don't know. We never, mm. expl- he never explained the why part uh-huh. um, down to really the kind of the nitty gritty. Um, and, you know, we've since become friends. We, I was not his favorite. He wasn't my, my favorite. Mm-hmm. And we, we have, we have mended our fences, which yeah. is nice. <laughs> um yeah, so I was I was cut from the team after '91, and I didn't go to the '95 World Cup, which was really hard. 
really hard because when you've been in that environment and I was only 95, how old was I? Born in 1968. So I was young. Yeah. 27. 27. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. 27. So, you know, 27, it's like, you're, you're right in, in the middle of it. You're feeling great. And so not to be on that team was really devastating watching them then lose in the semifinal was devastating. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, out of really great uh, disappointment or despair comes something really tremendous. And it's another uh, confluence of um, so a silver lining, you know, when something bad has happened, how does something good come out of it? And this was another perfect example. Um, you know, I, I, I learned about leadership and, and what does leadership look like and who can be, who can carry that torch of leadership or wear the armband, so to speak. Mm. And it just so happened at the time it was Julie Foudy for me, uh, because the U.S. national team was going on strike against U.S. soccer because they were having contract negotiations after the World Cup. And U.S. soccer wanted to pay the national team the same as it always had, only, you know, we had become world champions and, you know, there was it, it needed to be different. And the team stood up and said, no, we're not going to accept that. And they said, well, we'll just get, uh, the, the next group of players to play in the, in the Olympics and the t- Julie uh, Foudy, she, she's awesome. She's like, well, we've already contacted them and they also are with us. Uh, and then so is the next group. And so is the next group. Uh, but at the same time, um, I have to tell you that I got a call from then the coach that took over right before 95, Tony DeChico. And he said, Hey, we want you to come in and be in camp. Now this, I've been off the, I've this is for 19. This is for 96 pre 96. Now this is at the, yeah, this is post 95 world cup Okay. in September of 95 and then November of 95. Got it. So the team went on strike and said, Nope, we won't be going to camp and we're going to we're going to figure this out with us soccer. We're going to make this right. We're going, it's not for us. It's not for the 18 to 24 players that are going to be in camp. It's for the future of women's soccer. And so they didn't go to camp and Tony called me and said, Hey, we want to have you in camp. And I immediately called Julie and I said, I'm with you. I'm with you. I believe in what we're doing. Uh, I, you know, I'm not going to go. And she's like, you better go. You need to go because you need to get on this team. And if it means that you have to go, we'll do the work here and you got to go. No way. Yeah. And so for me, that was just, again, that's just one of those things that happened during my career that I'll never forget because she, she helped me see like, listen, leaders can lead by action. Uh They can lead with their voice and they also lead by just being open and saying, look, you know, it's not only going to be one way. Right. Well, there's going to be many right. ways that this is going to happen. And so the pathway you need to take is you need to go to camp Wow. and you need to, and you need to make the team. And I, and I promised Julie that day, I said, I will be my best. You, I will make the team. And so, you know, they did their thing and I went to camp and I had a good camp in September. And then I came back in November and 
after that November camp, we all had meetings with coach. And so I went into the meeting and of course, you know, you're nervous. You mm-hmm. go and talk to whether it's your boss or your coach, you're like, Oh my gosh, you know, like, uh, it might be a little different in swimming. Cause you, you basically race the clock, right? Yeah, it's I more mean, objective. If you have, if you have the time, you have the time right. it's nobody can dispute that. So, um, so I'm in the meeting and I'm like, oh, I think I, I feel like I did my best. Like I, I felt like I dominated the camp and the coach says, Hey, um, you know, we really think you did a great job. And I'm like, oh, you know, the relief kind yeah. of, Oh, your shoulders feel a little lighter. And he says, but, and we want you on the team. Yes. <laughs> you know, fireworks, Christmas, all the holidays, your birthday all wrapped up in one. And then, and he says, but not as a forward, as a defender. And then you're like, like what? <laughs> so basically he threw out at me that, you know, we want you on the team, but we're going to change your position. And this is my gift to everybody who I hope hears this, which is, you know, we have to get away from thinking we only fit into one category. You know, we really have great potential beyond um, what we think we do. And I learned that because I had a choice in that moment. First, we have choices, right? Am I going to give this a chance or I'm going to stand up and I'm going to say, no, this is what I believe I am. And I'm going to stay here and I'll show you. And, but the second one wasn't going to allow me to be on the team. Right. So I chose being on the team. I chose changing my position. And then I chose to embrace the opportunity to learn something. And what I quickly learned is that we all have tools that we need. We just didn't know we had um, one of those SOG um, type things where it's got like 72 tools in one little thing. Right. I had only opened it up to like one tool. And I found out that I had a whole toolbox in this thing. And so all the things I knew about being a forward, I used in my position to defend against forwards. Now I'm like, Oh, I see that coming from a million miles away. So it, and I decided that I I was playing next to Carla Overbeck and Christine Lilly, and they were like another captain and the most capped player on the planet. Like, I, if I can't do well between those two, I probably don't deserve to be here anyway. So, um, I said, what the hell let's, let's go. All right. I'm going to do it. Wow. So that was a big moment for my, the chain that was really like the resurrection of my career. Wow. Uh, And like, what a, what a story, what insight, what insight into just the way life works. And one of the things that I'm struck by is the seeming parallel between what Julie Foudy did, which is no, you you go play because I want you on that team. So that was her using her toolbox. Like, I want Brandy on my team, and this is the way I do it. But yet I'm going to hold the course. And then your coach, who really kind of went about the same sort of leadership style, which at first you think is kind of selfless, which maybe it is at first, but it was visionary. Well, and there was a, yeah, for sure. I, I believe it was uh, visionary because we started to change the way we were going, we were going to play, which I think was really stepping outside of, uh, the norm for what U S women's soccer had been doing, which was just being, a destructive man to man marking back mm-hmm. three players, just 
blowing things up and then the fallout would be like, okay, we just clean it up as fast as we can. And he wanted to go away from that. And that was different. And so, I mean, I think our national teams are where they are because of that change. Mm-hmm. Um, no doubt. And, and that change had success right away. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, you won gold, your team won gold in the 1996 Atlanta games, hometown <laughs> favorites. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was something that honestly, the Olympics are, I mean, playing in the world cup as a soccer player is like the ultimate, ultimate tournament. Cause it's specifically for soccer being a part of the Olympics, as you know, is just such an amazing array of people and incredible talent, like all just squeezed into this one place. And you're like, I mean, I remember, you know, soccer never got to really stay at the village. So when we came for opening ceremonies, it was the first time, you know, we, we got to see it and, you know, just like our heads were just like spinning about there's a seven foot basketball guy standing next to a four foot eight gymnast and like everything in between. And Oh my gosh. Like we were like, I honestly felt like a spectator in that environment. It was so amazing. And you know, the different languages and the flags and the colors and everything was just incredible. And I think that that is not only a magic for the athletes that all of them come back with that experience, a similar experience, Mm -hmm. but it seems also for, the people who watch it, for the world who watch it, that, that it's to, to see the world come together and compete for something that's bigger than, mm-hmm. you know, perhaps politics. Um, and and they all come together and they watch these kids and their dreams like unfolding or not unfolding right before their eyes. And there's something incredibly magical about that, I think, on both ends for the athletes and the some of the life lessons that you learn from the Olympics as an athlete are very painful, but I think the viewers really appreciate it as well. Well, I think we all go through kind of the education of what the, the Olympic spirit is and it's to be your best in the moment uh, that you're asked to compete. And sometimes it works out and other times it doesn't. Um, I mean, we all go there with the, the same objective, which is to be our best. Mm-hmm. And, and if our best, if we are on our best, then we can potentially win a gold medal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it doesn't always mean that you're going to. You know, you can still do your best and not win that. But I really love the spirit of the competition, of the right now, of the immediate, um, and really the, I I believe what I experienced was that we could cheer for each other. Like we all Mm -hmm. understood what it was to get there as you've, you've already um, shared, like, you know, the journey to that point is really, it's intense. It's so many things, right. It's hard to put in just a few words, what it, what it means. And so I think there is this camaraderie. I felt there was Mm -hmm. a lot of camaraderie, you know, whether it was in your own team USA or USA house, or if it was just to spectate on other athletes and just to applaud great effort and um, great talent. And I, I think that's what I loved about Olympics when I, 1980, when I watched the men's hockey team, mm-hmm. when 
um, the, the gold medal in Lake Placid. I didn't know anything about hockey. I didn't, I was from California. The yeah. San Jose Sharks didn't <laughs> exist at that time. And, but when I saw Michael Ruzioni step up onto the podium and with that big American flag and he was wet, and then he called his teammates up and I thought to myself, I want to do that. Like, I had no idea what that was, but that there was this rush of this, like togetherness, you know? And I felt that in the village, like, Again, it didn't matter where the athletes were from. I was just like, we are in this thing together. We're fighting this fight about, you know, just com competing to be our best. It doesn't matter what flag we, we fly. It really doesn't. I, I felt there was a great camaraderie and a great competitiveness about it. Yet another magic of sports. Yeah. Really. Do you think, yeah. do you think in, in some ways, Atlanta 1996 was a kind of a primer was a effective lead up for what was going to happen three years later, which was the world cup being hosted by the United States in 1999. I'm into the yes and no answers today. No, it's fine. Sorry about that, John. And I think that's because, well, I, I think it's because I'll tell you why, because the no part is we had. I think 30 seconds of live action for women's soccer for on TV. Really? So no. Yeah. So no, in that way, there wasn't this, you know, ability to watch and yes, in that pe people came to the stadium and they loved uh -huh. women's soccer. And I mean, not a person, it didn't feel like a person left their seat nor did they leave the seat once the game was over and then the medal ceremony was about to happen. And then just like the celebration of that moment to hear your anthem was, I think that was definitely this uptick and this surge of like, wow, we just saw something great. So no, in terms of it didn't get broadcast to everybody live. They didn't see the whole game. I wish they had, cause it was, you know, again, against, China in a, a really competitive, you know, intense game. Um, and so in yes, in that we had something really great and the fans knew it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yet that seems to me like if you were reduced to a 30 second promo then or a 30 second like highlight reel, right? Which it sounds like yep. you were that as far as the media was concerned, you were still a little obscure sport. But in reality, time, yes. reality, you might not actually have been by virtue of tens, X tens of thousands of people who watched and enjoyed you playing in person in Atlanta. Right. Yeah. We went back, uh, seven of us, I think it was seven, myself, Tish Venturini, Christine Lilly, Joy Fawcett, Julie Foudy, Brianna Scurry, Michelle, you know, Michelle didn't make it. Did Michelle make it to that day? And we sat in the stadium and they put on the game on the big screen. It was 25 years. Wow. It's been now. And it was amazing. I don't wow. think any, I think most of us said we've never seen a replay of that game. And it was incredible to watch it together in on that field. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and to think, and to think about that Olympics, I don't know if you remember, but that Olympics had gymnastics, basketball, softball, swimming. I mean, mm -hmm. it was like a blow up of women's sports. It was. 
And so I think that also was a real big, um, that was the undercurrent to 99, in my opinion. So in 1999, in the lead up, you were, you're obviously selected for, for that team. So that wasn't an issue, but um, they were planning on filling these giant NFL stadiums. But like, how many people did you get to a normal USA women's soccer team on, you know, just in the previous three years? I mean, how were you able to fill up? (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, no, it's a great, you know, again, it's a great question and a great, I think it's a great story because you're right. Like you're going to say, do the math. Like what's the Delta on this? Because how are you going to say you're going to fill 75,000 seats of China versus Nigeria or Sweden versus Japan, you know, and, but let's just take the U S games specifically. And you say like, okay, well you get 15,000 or 20,000 maybe. Right. That's still, that's a third of what you need to fill the stadium. Um, Here's one thing we know. Americans love a good competition. You know, and when your team is at the top, we're going to go. We love that. We're going to, we're going (laughs) to buy a ticket to that. That's awesome. So I love that spirit because we do, we get behind things like that. So, you know, I think what happened was the, the, uh, world cup committee, the women's world cup committee, um, led by, uh, Marla Messing and Donna Donna Daverona, right. Yeah. Who was a former Olympic swimmer. You know, they, these women were relentless. You know, they weren't like, no, we're not going to do it in some small little rinky dink, small college town up in the Northeast. It would be lovely, but that's not what we're doing. We're, this is going to be a big, this is the world cup. And then they just went for it. And so I think with that kind of leadership, again, we talk about leadership, you Mm -hmm. know, when the leadership believes and the leadership is like, we're not, we're not going to shrink to this, then, you know, things start happening. But we would do we would do like two faces, you know, the, the character two face from like the bat. It's like say something over here and then go. We'd be like, yeah, we're gonna get seventy five thousand people to come to the stadium. Yeah, no problem. Oh my god, how are we gonna get seventy five thousand people <laughs> to the stadium? Are we really gonna do it? And we'd be like, I don't know, but we're gonna kiss as many babies and you know shake hands and we're gonna give away free. I mean, we gave away clinics to use fields. I mean, we we bartered ourselves to the end of the earth and we pulled it off. Absolutely. I, I was, I was, I was watching um, some, some videotape of you and your team on the bus on the, I believe it was to the first venue <laughs> and, and you're stuck in a traffic jam. You're like, Oh no, what's this traffic jam? And he did, it took you a little while to realize, wait a second. <laughs> and We're it was so clueless. It was like field of dreams. Yeah. Right. The lineup of cars. <laughs> oh my gosh. And we, and it was not just that it was a traffic jam. It was still slow. And we had a police escort and we're like, what is, what is the big holdup? And then we're like, Oh my God, they're coming to the world cup. We'll hear more from Brandy in just a minute. Hey, listen, I'm really excited to tell you about our new partner for season two of sports life balance. Roca is an athletic performance design brand founded by two of my fellow All-American Stanford swimmers. And I've been using their equipment for years. And not just because they're my friends, but because their wetsuits, their goggles, and their workout gear are second to none in the industry. 
Because Roka was founded by athletes for active people just like you and me, they also make the best performing eyeglasses and sunglasses on the planet. And in fact, I'm wearing some right now. And let me tell you, they're the finest glasses I've ever owned. They're extremely lightweight and due to the totally adjustable non-slip nose pads and temples, they never fall off my face. I mean, never, even when I'm hot and sweaty. And best of all, I totally forget that I'm wearing them. Roka has dozens of classic and great-looking styles to choose from. I love being able to use the same pair of glasses for hitting a hard workout or hitting a night on the town. Whether you need prescription glasses like mine or a stylish pair of sunglasses for the summer, please go check them out. Head to roka.com, that's R-O-K-A.com, and enter code SLB, as in Sports Life Balance. That's three letters, S-L-B, to save 20% on your first order. And now let's get back to Brandy Chastain. They're coming to see the people that are in this bus right now. Like it was, honestly, we were taking pictures out the, out of the windows of the bus. I mean, not figuratively or not literally, but fig- we were taking pictures of the people in having tailgates and they were taking pictures of the bus. <sighs> like it, it was incredible. Like no, everybody was experiencing something amazing that day. And something really for the first time in so many yeah. ways for, for both fans and the teams competing. Right. Right. Yeah, it was. And even, I mean, I'll tell you, Christine Lilly was, uh, I won't forget this either because she's a, uh, her family had been New York jets um, season ticket holders for, um, I don't know, years and years ever since she could remember. And so we got to the stadium and we were in the Jets locker room. No way. And yeah. And she got to sit in Wayne Krebet's locker and she was just like, this is the best thing that's ever like, this is just amazing. And, and now to think, you know, players would be thinking Christine Lilly was in this locker. Like I'm sitting in Christine Lilly's locker. Yeah. Like it's- I'm wearing Christine. Lilly- Alex Morgan is wearing Christine Lilly's Jersey number. Well, and Brandy Chastain. Like, well, yeah, maybe so, Brandy yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's just. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty cool the the trajectory, and uh, you see it another of the million reasons that I wanted to uh, chat with you about this. Um, well, it's no secret to history that um, the nineteen ninety nine World Cup victory. But I would love you to take me back to uh, what's it, July tenth, nineteen ninety nine. The Rose Bowl, which is a gigantic stadium. <laughs> yes, it is. And and it is a, it's a marvel. It it is. You go to I, I mean I uh, you go to football games. I've only been to football games there. Oh, I've been mm. to concerts there too. It's just huge. Yeah. Ninety it, something thousand people were there. Yeah, ninety thousand plus people. Wow. And it's an expansive stadium. It's it's you know when you think about it, it is literally this bowl, and it kind of just kind of comes out and then it starts to go up, but it's just, it's, it's expansive. It's, yeah. it's different than modern day stadiums where they feel like they're kind of more on top of you than they are. Like this one was just like around you in this mass of humanity. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, that day was really, it was an amazing day for all the, the reasons we all know, you know, because of the outcome, but, I think just leading up to that, uh, getting to that point, you know, I think once the tournament started, you know, there was this 
well, prior to the tournament starting, there was this kind of underlying current of if the U.S. doesn't do well, meaning AKA win the World Cup, then the future of women's soccer and girls' soccer and maybe women's soccer globally will basically just go, right? Because, you know, if we can't do it here, where are we going to do it? Uh-oh. You know, where, where else is there a place in the world where they're going to embrace women in sports, where, you know, there's going to be this big opportunity, like you have to do it. So there was, you know, there was a little bit of that tension that was um, being hit, you know, hit Mm -hmm. back and forth. And, you know, we were, we were in the, not crisis management, but we were kind of in like emotional um, management, right? How do we, how do we deal with the emotions we're having about the gravity of this tournament and Mm -hmm. then now making it to the final Mm -hmm. and what, what the potential is in the future. And so, you know, we made it, we make it to the final. So that's a huge relief for me, especially considering in the quarterfinal, I scored an own goal and we went down to Germany one zero. Mm. And, you know, that to me is another one of those <laughs> amazing life moments, John, really that, you know, you don't wish it on anybody and you don't see it coming. And then it happens mm-hmm. And it could have been the worst thing, but turned into the best thing because next thing you know, you have a teammate basically just put their arm around you and say, don't worry about it. Like we're moving on, let's go. And you're going to help us win. And, you know, because I think because of the Rocky road that I had, I was like, okay, let's do this. Because I knew I'd fallen down so many times that the only answer was to get up. And so now we find ourselves in this final moment and we're getting to the stadium and you're just having all these amazing, you know, feelings and how great it's going to be. And we're going to get out onto the field and we're going to get into the locker room. We're going to get our stuff on. We're going to go out into the field and we're going to have a great warm up. Only that didn't happen because the game before us was a tie and was going into penalty kicks and we couldn't get onto the field. So here you are in the biggest game of your life and you don't even get to warm up on the field. No way. Yeah. And so, you know, the Rose Bowl to me is just this incredible stadium. Obviously, it's a it's an American icon when it comes to stadiums. And, you know, some of the biggest sporting events in the history of sports in America have happened there. Um, But little did people know that on this greatest day in women's soccer history, we didn't even get onto the field and that stadium was an old stadium and it was like dripping water and this musty smell and it was dark and it was dank. And it was like, now we're running in a, in a locker room that was too small for the 24 of us. And so then we would run inside and up and down the tunnel and kick the ball against the wall. And, you know, China had to do the same thing. So it's not like we were doing it alone, but you know, it, it just didn't start the way that you envision it. Yeah. You know, I'm sure in your head as a swimmer, you probably envision your race many, many times sure. before it happens. Uh, and this was nothing like that. Nothing at all. And, and when you actually went out to take the pitch, you mentioned that 90 plus thousand people are there. I mean, it has to just be, I mean, thrilling is not, it's just not even a good, a good enough word to describe it. 
I mean, it makes me kind of, you get a little emotional, but I mean, honestly, it's like, it takes your breath away. It, it just like, you go from this darkness and out into the light. And it's like, every sense is just like slammed with, you know, intensity. You know, you feel it on your skin and you just, your ears hear it. And it's like, it's pounding in your heart and your blood is just like coursing through your veins. Like the adrenaline isn't just through the roof. And, uh, you know, you had to be able to manage that. That is like, that was one of the, I think, greatest um, obstacles in a final is that, right? Because now it's upon you. Mm-hmm. And how are you going to manage your emotions? Thank goodness for Dr. Colleen Hacker. You know, we, we had started working with her during the Olympics. And I think that really helped us because to be able to manage emotions under those conditions is so critical. She was a sports psychologist then? Yes, she okay. was. Yes. All right. Well, yeah. and, and it was hot. Oh, that's an understatement. Right. It was damn hot. It was, I mean, it was, I think the, the thermometer was at, it could have been easily 115 degrees. Unbelievable. And there's all those people and it's a bowl and. I can't tell you, this is hilarious. This is one of my favorite stories when people say this, you know, they, it could be from any walk of life. I was at that game in 1999. Oh my God. That's so awesome. Thank you so much for being there. I mean, tell me about what it was like being as a, as a fan in that stadium. They're like, it was so hot. (laughs) And then, and then the next thing they usually say is, and they ran out of water. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I didn't get water either. It was like, (laughs) no way. (laughs) You know, because you're playing the game, you know, now if it's hot, they have a, you know, they call it a hydration break and you stop and you get some water and make sure everybody's safe. And, um, I mean, I was like, I know we didn't get to drink water either. It was, (laughs) I mean, I honestly, I thought my feet had melted to my cleats. It was so (laughs) damn hot. It was so hot. Well, in, in the game itself, I, I went and revisited it. I saw it at the time, um, but I went and revisited it. it. It basically was a scoreless game, back and forth, kind of yeah. a seesaw, and a real, yeah. like just a real fight back and forth, right? It, uh, the best way I describe it is this was two teams that, would, that were bending, but they just wouldn't break. Mm. There was just no break. Uh, and, and we pushed and we pushed and they pushed and they pushed and no one was willing to give in. And that's why it ended up being, you know, going to penalty going kicks to penalty. because it was just the will of both of those teams was so tremendous. It, it really was phenomenal. Well, it was phenomenal to be able to revisit it. Um, but those those, the penalty kicks were just like, that's what's seared into everybody's memory. And, and just to, to, to take it through, I mean, maybe you're better to explain it, but when you tie in regulation Mm -hmm. and then you're still tied in overtime, then it goes to penalties and each team alternates kicking on the goal and they get five shots on goal and whoever ends up the best of those five shots ends up winning the game. That's correct. So <clears throat> it went back and forth for the first two, right? The, the Chinese, the Americans, the, you, you all, you, you two. And then 
the third shot from China, I just went and watched this again today. And that save from Brianna, Brianna Scurry, right? Yeah, Brianna Scurry. Brianna Scurry. Mm -hmm. The the thing that I never noticed before, I didn't remember, is she charged at the kicker. Like she, <laughs> she. I mean, I just really think she just freaked her out. Or so I don't know. She charged at the kicker and was just able to cut it right off before it got by her. Yeah, it it it. You know, I think there's a big discussion over that penalty kick because, and I think Brianna was asked after like you know, did you come off the line? You know, cause there, I think there was a loose interpretation of what the goalkeeper could or could not do at that mm. time. Um, now it's very highly enforced and oh. the goalkeeper cannot come off the line. They may move, but they have to go laterally, but stay on the line. And, um, and yeah, she took, she, she did what goalkeepers should do when they go to make a save, which is, she was an in, she intersected the pathway of the ball right. into the goal instead of waiting for it to come here and go laterally she made she bisected that line and made an amazing save amazing save and her job is not to referee the game her job is just to make a save <laughs> and she did and it was wow. incredible and yeah. you know that's that was the the necessary piece to allow my final kick to be the decider. The fifth and final kick for Team USA. Um, I, I, I just I have a couple of questions just on the surface. It's like, why were you first of all chosen as the fifth kicker? Nerves of steel, baby. What do you is, mean? Is that <laughs> it? Is that, is that what the coaches thought? Uh, do you know? Well, no. I'll tell you. Um, during the run of play, um, if there was ever a penalty kick um, called mm -hmm. um, there had already been decided who would be the people who would take them if they were in the game. So oh. Michelle Akers, Michelle Akers would be one. Myself would be another. Um, I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if it's, I love pressure. I don't know if it's, I just felt very comfortable. I thought, it, you know, it's a great opportunity to do the thing that you've been, you know, playing your whole, your whole life and just a great challenge. Yeah. So I had, I had, I had been on the short list, Michelle and I, or if there was a penalty kick during the run of play in that game that we would take it. And it turned out that Michelle was now off the field. She had gone out during the, um, I think the end, the end of regulation and she and Brianna collided and, it knocked Michelle out of the game. Uh, and so it seemed natural that I would take a penalty because in the run of the play, I would take one. Only our assistant coach, Lauren Gregg, came up to me and said, hey, um, do you want to take a penalty kick? And I was like, well, that's kind of weird because I would have taken one in the game. Mm. Um, and I, But I immediately said, yes, of course, I, I, want, I would like to take one. She's like, okay, perfect. So then a couple minutes later while we're still kind of cooling down tony came over to me and he said okay like kind of put his hand on my shoulder kind of thing and said like okay you're going to take a penalty kick and i said yep lauren and i already talked about it no problem he goes okay great you're going to take it with your left foot and then he just like ran away really fast <laughs> and uh, you know i didn't really think about it 
But now I think about it after the fact, because I've had this discussion many, many times, I think I was just too exhausted to contemplate what, what he was saying to me. Hmm. Uh, you know, all of our practices were open to the public. China could have come to all of our practices. They could have been watching everything we've been doing. Um, which I think is really spectacular, to be honest with you. You know, I think practices should be open to the public. I think people should be allowed to see these teams play and to see what it's like to go through these workouts and to be a part of this process because that's really the, the meat and potatoes to what happens. But everything's so secretive now. You, you can't get into anything. Mm. Um, but we, it, that was open. And um, so I had actually missed a penalty kick earlier in the year right-footed against China and we ended up losing the game. And so I think that was one reason Tony asked me to take it with my left foot. Hmm. And to me, I think the greater underlying theme of that ask was, or it wasn't really an ask. It was just, he told me was that he knew I could do it. And I think when you have that kind of trust and you have that kind of backing, you can do anything. And Tony was really, an incredible coach for me as an individual because he just gave me a lot of confidence and he believed that I was good enough to, to do that, which I don't know if many coaches would have the guts to tell somebody to, you know, shoot the ball with their other hand or, you <laughs> right. know, at the most critical time. So again, you know, do the backstroke instead of the breaststroke. The breaststroke. So Wow. That, that is yeah. just, I mean, that's a crazy story. It's like, and I know you've obviously kicked it with your left foot. It's just, it's kind of mind boggling <laughs> to me. And obviously it's also empowering when a coach trusts you that much. Yeah. Well, oh, I mean, no, I miss Tony a lot. Um, you know, and you know, he did my induction speech for the hall of fame and, um, you know, his, his words were always very powerful for me, you know, just, you know, he, he, he let me know that I, I could, I could, I could be, I would be on his team and that, you know, it didn't matter whether I felt I could do the position or not that he believed that I could. And, and I think that's why sports is so powerful. I think that's why co being a coach is so mm -hmm. such an incredible position and important position. Um, yeah, that, that day was, uh, that was an amazing few seconds event that when, you know, I hit that ball and it went into the net and then it became just incredible. And that chaos of the celebration and the team coming together and that 90,000 plus people just rising up and cheering. It was spectacular. I, I, it was, it was so spectacular. Um, and then of course, your spontaneous celebration, unforgettable, iconic celebration. Is this, this is just happen? Was this just in the throes of, of celebration that it happened? How did, how did this all come about? I mean, I know the I men mean, do it all the time. But what do you feel like when you win a race? Oh, what do you, what do you, what do you do? What do you do with those emotions? You slap the water, yeah. you throw your hands into the air. You don't, you don't think about it. Absolutely you just, not. You just feel it. And I have no idea. I'd never done that before. <laughs> I'd never consciously like thought about doing that before. Yeah. I think men's in men's sports, it, it happens, but mm -hmm. I, I mean, in men's soccer, but I never really thought about like 
Ooh, I hope I get a chance. Um, so I can do that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, there was, in my opinion, there was no script that had me taking a final penalty kick and us winning the world cup. That was not in the script. It was a nobody's script. script. No, it was a nobody's script. The, the script said Mia Hamm would score the winning goal. Cause she was the best. She was the best and the leading goal scorer in the world. She would score a goal. It, interesting that you said that there's no script because I believe I, I interviewed Donna Daverona mm-hmm. on another episode. And um, she said basically the same thing that yeah. nobody knew that this would happen, but it, no. it did. And it changed the world. It changed women's sports. <laughs> Don't make me cry. <laughs> but it's uh, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is crazy. I mean, you are on Newsweek, Time, Sports Illustrated, everywhere. It's to this day, it's still an iconic image of, of what women can do in sports and, and changing the world. Um, yeah. you know, I, I, I was struck by something that I saw that, and I believe it was Carly Lloyd. Um, she actually said that she watched, she was, she watched the world cup in person as a little girl and, you know, countless of those other women who were on 2019, obviously watched that world cup and that magic that unfolded that day. Um, I mean, you're, you've created quite a legacy. I think, I don't think, I think we did. I'm sorry, you're, you and your team. Yeah, I, I think we did. Again, I think it was one of those unintentional circumstances where I think we knew we were, you know, we, we had, a, we had some business to take care of, right? This is a, was a very highly motivated, um, intense group, very talented. And again, I think the first where we talked about during this conversation was this love, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think we had this intense love for the game and for each other and for making it fun and exciting. And, you know, we weren't, we were fearless. Mm-hmm. It was incredible that a group of women could come who somehow came from all different places, all different people came together with the same type of mentality. Like we are going to do this thing and we are, we're not going to apologize for being brave and, and bold and, and believing in this, you know, what could happen. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't necessarily know if we could really say that this was intentional, but I think there was a lot of, there was a lot of um, investment mm. in the outcome going as it did. It's, it, it, is, it is truly remarkable. And in so many ways that you and your team were fighting for, you know, getting, getting women's sports and girls' sports and girls' soccer on the map, the women of 2019 and the current national team, um, they're fighting basically a very similar battle, but this, this one- Same. Same battle. Same battle. It's the same battle. Same conversation. It's been going on for 30 years. It's exhaustive. Yeah, I bet. You know? I bet. And this one has to do with equal pay, which I know that I know that you you alluded to that or you know, equal treatment before. But Mm -hmm. I mean it's really come to it's really come to the forefront that the the women's 
team is the one that everybody watches. It's the one that I watch. Well, I think there's great enjoyment for watching both of them, you know, men's and women's soccer. And I think what this team has been, you know, yelling from the mountaintops is, uh, and what I think most women have been battling in business. You know, if you're an engineer, you should be paid the same thing. You do the same job. Why is, why is your gender the barrier to being paid equally? Shouldn't be. Um, and you know, this conversation has been happening for too long. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of, to be debated about how technology has influenced or inundated our lives, you know, with social media and the immediacy of news and, you know, are things real, how, you know, a lot of negative chatter, uh, how, you know, how things, how people can be influenced very easily in negative ways. But the good thing about technology in this conversation is that nobody can be, it, nobody go, gets to go quiet anymore. Mm. Nobody gets to be hidden anymore. It's, you know, everybody knows about equal pay. Everybody mm. knows that it needs to be changed. And because of that, allies have come out, you know, whether that be professional male players coaches in different managers and presidents of companies, you know, uh, I use visa as an example because they have been a, um, a sponsor of Olympics and they've been a sponsor of us soccer. And they have proudly stood up and said, we want to sponsor soccer. Uh, and, but we want it to be equal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, us soccer said, well, we deal with the money the way we deal with it. And they said, well, then you won't be dealing with our money. And um, U.S. soccer finally came around to say, okay, it will be a 50-50 split, which it had never been before. And it could have been, it could have been any sponsor wanting to sponsor women's soccer, but the answer was always, no, you're sponsoring all of U.S. Mm. soccer. But 70% of the, the money was going to men and 30% was going to women. And so um, that doesn't happen anymore. It doesn't work like that. Right. So that is a brave new world, but we still have to march on and we still have to have loud voices and it still needs to, the needle still needs to be moved. And so it's an exhaustive, exhaustive conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can tell that you've had it many, many times and have <laughs> yeah. talked about it and thought about it for a long, long time. So I yeah. appreciate you giving, uh, giving us your thoughts on that. Um, you know, getting here toward the end, you, you've stayed very involved in soccer, um, and you, you, you started coaching, um, what was it, about five, six, something years ago? Uh, you know, I've been coaching for a little longer than that, but like, you know, technically, yes, like all in coaching. Like with Bellerman. Seven, yes, Bellerman's been now seven seasons. And I see you're wearing a Bellerman shirt. I am. I went out was with the boys today. So that was nice. Well, yeah. well, and, and, you know, I just found uh, it's interesting parallel. You live in San Jose still, um, right. Or you live in the Bay, you yeah. live in the, the South Bay. I anyway. live in San Jose. Yeah. live in San Jose. Um, and, and I think it's interesting that you went and now you're coaching with Bellerman college prep, which is one of my dearest friends and teammates, Pablo Morales went to that school. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's, it's basically the boys high school equivalent to, Archbishop Mitty, 
I mean, they're just correct cross town boys and boys and girls school. Um, yep. Is that is that is there some intention in that you think, or is it just <laughs> one more thing that just happened to fall that way? Uh, I think the universe loves to set me up in lots of fun ways. Um, I again, you know, I think things don't happen by accident. Um, you know, I, I happened to live a mile away from the campus. And when I had my young son, Jaden, I used to take him on walks and we would go past the soccer field. And it just so happens that Bellarmine is split by a, a street, but the street has to go up and over because it goes over a railroad track. Mm. And so when you get up, you can see down onto the soccer field and I huh. would kind of daydream and, you know, look at it and think, I want to be out there. And I also wanted to, to have a place to bring Jaden where there was boys. And so I went to volunteer and um, I was met quite politely. I was met quite politely. <laughs> and um, they, you know, I said, Hey, I'm, I'm interested if I'm interested in volunteering, if you have a space. And they said, well, we're getting ready to go on a tournament. This was like in the, in the late part of the year. We're going on a tournament and we'll be back. And when we get back, let's kind of talk about the details. But in the meantime, in the meantime, go to the main office and you have to do some tests, fingerprints and blah, blah, blah. I said, okay. Comes around. Excuse me. It's new. It's the new year. And I don't hear anything back. So I decided to go back out there and, uh, and I was like, Hey, I just want to check in. I got all the tests done and everything's good to go. And he's like, yeah, you know, it's just not going to happen. It's not going to work. I was like, Oh, bummer. That's too oh. bad. Okay. You know, so I kind of went away a little dejected. <laughs> like I'm a volunteer. Like, well, who turns away volunteers? Uh, yeah. Like it was weird. So I said, okay, fine. And I think it was then like a year or two after that, I'm in my local coffee shop and a guy walks in and he's got on a woman's soccer shirt, which you don't see very often. Right. And it was for this local junior college, Kenyatta college. Um, and I said, Hey, Oh, I said, women's soccer. And he's like, yeah. I said, do you, are, what do you do? And he's like, Oh, I coach there. I said, but I just became the head coach at Bellarmine. I was like, Oh, that's neat. I said, I tried to volunteer there a few years ago. And he goes, well, do you want to be my assistant? I mean, literally, I just met him. He walked in and we, you know, <laughs> and uh, I said, well, let me, you know, go back to my family. Let me have a conversation about it. And I did. I was like, yeah, I do. And wow. it's been awesome. And yeah, to your question about, you know, here you're getting into a, a place that was kind of a rival of where you came from. And I think it's a perfect example of what life offers us, Right. We come from a certain place. We have our certain feelings about things. We, 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 we have a culture and, you know, we have kind of this conflict with other people. And, you know, sometimes it's um, a positive competitiveness and other times it's not as positive as it could be. And we just don't really take the time to get to know each other. And for me, you know, I couldn't have gone to Bellarmine, you know, it was an all boy, it's an all boys school. Right, right. And I never played against Bellarmine. So I never had any issues mm -hmm. about it. I had great friends that went there. And so I never kind of had that kind of weird feeling, but a few of the boys would love to give me a hard time if something didn't go right or blah, blah, blah. Oh, Mitty, they're so bad. Or like, you know, blah, blah, you know, whatever they would say. And I would just, 
nod my head and be like, yeah, but I would just do one or two things on the soccer field to get their attention. And they'd be like, all right, respect coach, respect, (laughs) you know, like we got you. Okay. We see you. And pretty soon it was, you know, I, now I play MIDI and they're a rival of mine and I love playing them because I know they're going to bring a great competitiveness to the game. And, you know, we have to respect them for what they do Mm -hmm. and we're going to earn their respect for what we do and it will be positive. And does it get a little edgy? Totally. Of course. Yeah. It gets edgy at times, (laughs) which is awesome. It's what it should be. It's supposed to be. It's competition. Yeah. And so it's fun. I love it. That's awesome. Well, going, going back to your roots and, also giving back um, and imparting the wisdom that you've learned along the way um, to the next generation is something that you have done, I think, quite intentionally throughout your career, which is like you were trying to be an example. You and your teammates were trying to be examples for the young girls of what they could be. Uh, you know what? I, I think this women's national team, that I, the national teams that I got to play on, were believers. They were believers that everybody mattered Mm -hmm. and that that we couldn't have opened our arms any wider Mm -hmm. to say, please come in. Because I think when you come from the starting block of nobody knows what you're doing, nobody knows who you are, you're basically doing your own thing in this little corner over here. And when it started to grow, you know, I think we took care of it in a way that only pioneers or, you know, start startups can, because they understand the, the grind of not having something. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there was this general love of the little things. And every time a new player would come in, it didn't matter if they were 17 years old or 25 years old, it was like, get in here. Because you're going to make our you're you're going to be a part of making our team great, and so we need to. Even if you're competitive, you're you're competing for my position. You're still going to be embraced in this environment because we need all of us to be successful. And I think that all little girls, when they came to this environment, they felt that like you matter. You're going to make this successful. You need to feel that you belong here. And that was critical. Yeah, I, um, I shared a little bit with you, but this whole topic is very close to my heart. Um, my wife was a Division One athlete. Um, my daughter, as I told you, is a is a Division One athlete, and there are a lot of female athletes in my family. Um, some of which are current Division One athletes. Some of them are nationally ranked competitors. And I I just texted them and said, Hey, I'm I'm interviewing Brandy Chastain. Uh, is there anything, any questions that you would have? And I, I was able to sit with my daughter, who's home for the summer, and we watched um, This Is Football. Mm-hmm. And, and on that, that episode, that is you and the Japanese player. Um, mm-hmm. and, and my daughter was just riveted because she was born in 1999. She was born in the year <laughs> of the World Cup. Right, yes. so she doesn't remember it. Yeah. And and I I, I finished up and she was kind of she's kind of quiet and and I said, "Emma, do you have any questions?" And for, you know, for me to ask Brandy, he goes, she and she said something so poignant. I don't have any questions, but tell her that she's really cool. <laughs> 
That is awesome. Oh, that's so touching. That is so touching. You know, um, I, I think every young woman like your daughter uh, is my inspiration. Honestly, you know, being that little girl where, you know, not many girls in the neighborhood were playing. And, you know, I'd go to the soccer matches at the earthquakes and I'd ask my parents, can I please wait to try and get an autograph? Um, you know, they were so patient and they would allow me to do that. And sometimes I'd get one and sometimes I wouldn't. And, you know, I remember how important that was to me. And now it's like, it's, it's, as important and even more so important that if I ever have an opportunity, you know, whether that's, I get something in the mail, which is daily, you know, if somebody handwrites me a note, I handwrite a note back. Um, you know, if somebody asks for an autograph, absolutely. They're going to get it. Um, and because I was that kid, you know, I was that kid and these, those athletes matter to me. And so, um, tell your daughter we're, we're in it together. <laughs> I will, you know, I, we're in it together. I, I definitely will. And, and Brandy, I think you're pretty dang cool myself. <laughs> and I, I also appreciated that you returned my text and, and you agreed to do this because it's been such a treat um, to chat with you and to, to learn a little bit more about your life's journey. Um, and thank you for sharing your heartfelt stories. And, and your words do continue to inspire. Well, I thank you very much for the opportunity to put a smile on my face and remember my, these were just not my teammates. They were my sisters and they were the biggest support system. I mean, we, we, we went through so many life moments. We graduated high school. We graduated college. We got married. We had deaths in the family. We had children, you know, we got retired. We retired, <laughs> you know, we've done everything together and that's, you know, that's the beauty of sports. It, it uh, allows us to learn lessons and to grow up together. So thank you, John. Thanks, Brandy. When I asked Brandy to give me a quote that inspires her, she told me that her mother was a great influence on her life. And growing up, she would tell her, your pathway won't look like anybody else's but yours. So go out there and find your yes. I'm John Moffat, and I'm so glad you joined Brandy and me for our revealing conversation about her life and love for soccer. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to give us your five-star review and tell a friend. Until next week, be well, everyone. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed Sports Life Balance.